Uh, welcome back to Building a Fighter. My name is Dr. Austin Shane, sports chiropractor in Scottsdale, Arizona. With me, as always, badass strength coach in Denver, Colorado, Alex Friedman. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about rotation. And the, the topic or the title of the podcast is Rotation is Rotation is Rotation, no matter what sport you're working with. So why this kind of got brought up, I just moved into a nice new facility, big, big area. We work with a lot of base or the people there worked with a lot of baseball players, MLB guys, as well as some golfers. And one of the baseball players came up to me and he saw what I was doing with the fighters. And he's like, oh, that looks pretty similar to what we do. You guys just do it in a different intensity. I'm like, yeah, dude, like throwing a baseball is basically the exact same movement as throwing a punch. Actually, throwing a punch is extremely similar to throwing a football a little bit more based off the arm slot. But either way, as far as the rotation and the hips and the movement, rotation is rotation is rotation. You just play with the other variables around there for your sport. So Alex, when you're working with rotatory athletes, what are some of the similarities you see between the sports? Yeah, I mean, some things that I see are that you can train rotation up and down the force velocity curve the same way that you train sagittal plane movements, the same way that you train um, frontal plane movements. I think rotation should be foundational or as foundational as a lot of our sagittal plane movements, right? Like there's no sport or even athletic endeavor that doesn't involve rotation, right? Even if we're just stabilizing like – for whatever reason, and I've had this thought for quite a while now, our body works in like a rotational stability fashion, right? Even when we're like pulling a deadlift, right? Like you corkscrew your feet in the ground, your butt and your lats down. That's all a rotational based movement, right? And then when you get into some more of the power, the more uh, movements with more degrees of freedom, that rotation just becomes a little bit bigger. And then we can utilize the torque, which is just again, force and a rotational movement, the torque in a optimal way. And a lot of times it's a power way, right? Because that's what we, that's how we perform on the field, right? We get into a power type setting or power and speed type setting. So strength can be trained for stability. A lot of anti-rotations out in the world, right? Like, and, and that's, mm-hmm beneficial as well but i think the the concentric action or even the eccentric action of stopping your rotation is super important to train with a lot of these athletes because i believe it was you know i heard this maybe two or three years ago and it's probably from eric cressy like i think it's some like at least half of your rotational power comes from the stopping force mm-hmm. and the whiplash effect as much as it comes from like the generation of rotational force so uh, right Well, you need that stable base to pivot around, right? Like I, for example, something I do with all rotation athletes I work with, not just the fighters is, is going to be the cable or the Kaiser push pull. You're going to load the sling and explode the sling. So you're doing like a pull, you're rotating your spine through, and then you're throwing some sort of punch maneuver. It's extremely important that you use your front leg as the stable base that everything is pivoting around. You need to be able to increase the rotational rigidity in the front leg so that you have a pivot, just like muscles pull off of things. Movement patterns pull off of things. You have to have a stable base for everything to go around. And it's just as important to train the power of the punch as it is to train the foot stability that you pivot over the top of, as it is to train the, like train the knee stability that you pivot over the top of, actually loading into the hip into internal rotation. 
which is one of the biggest limiting factors in developing force is lack of internal rotation and rotation control of your hips. No. Yeah, I totally agree. I think because our, for whatever, however, our strength conditioning model has evolved, we've given a lot of credit to the proximal joints and like upper body push, upper body pull, but we haven't given a lot of love to like scapular, like upward rotation and scapular downward rotation or like Mm -hmm. hip internal rotation. Like we haven't gotten a lot of credit to those uh, proximal joints. Excuse me. I think I messed that up when I said proximal earlier, but those proximal joints, the joints closer to the midline haven't got a lot of credit. Like, so when we're doing those cable push pulls, or even if we're doing like a tripod row or a B stance row or, um, like a floor press, like what's the harm. And there shouldn't be a lot of harm in adding a thoracic rotation to that. Mm -hmm. Right. Like that's something that I know you Austin have been playing around with a lot given our last like YouTube video where you posted that, um, like press up with the shoulder bridge off the bench. That thing was sexy. That was, that looks hard as hell. Um, but you know, add that T-spine rotation under control, right? A lot of times that's looked at as an error and a lot of times it is performed as an error because we're just using momentum to kind of jerk the weight up. But let's like teach and involve the scapular and the thoracic rotation into a row or into a press. And then we can utilize that a, a more full and a more robust range of motion. Well, the cool thing, so with rotation being rotation, when you're looking at sports that need it, when almost every sport needs it, but that are primarily rotation-based, what you need to boil it down to is what are the demands of the sport within the lens of rotation, right? Like MMA, yeah. you need an extremely high capacity, and you need to be able to do a lot of rotation a lot of times, right? right. Baseball, say I'm working with a pitcher, you have to do more max output um, max output exercises for less conditioning based. So like if I'm going to do a, so something I've been doing with the fighters now that I have a wall to throw a med ball into is like a scoop toss, just Mm -hmm. alternating scoop tosses back and forth. So they're using their hips, getting the hips in with a heavier med ball. And they're just doing that for time. I'm not necessarily going to do that with a pitcher, right? They don't necessarily need a rotational capacity of a minute. Yeah. They need to be able to fucking power through a max velocity rotation event. So I'm going to train more of the max velocity end of the, the strengths or the speed strength spectrum yeah. and or force velocity curve. And then with that, I can try to isolate the variables they need versus for MMA. We need to be able to do that for a prolonged period of time. Similar to like, a, like I always talk about like Colby Covington, right. Colby Covington's rotational capacity is extremely high because he can keep punching at the end of 25 minutes at a high clip. Yeah, no. And, and you're exactly right. I think there's an argument for training all up and down the force logic curve, but you emphasize mm-hmm. what you're going to mm-hmm. perform in your sport, right? Like, like if we look at modern day baseball pictures, they're going to throw a hundred pitches over like a two hour window, right? Like that in and of itself is like a definition of like max power, like repeats, Mm -hmm. right? Our fighters are going to throw 300 punches in like 15 minutes. So obviously we're more work capacity based. So you look at the total workload and then you can train accordingly, but have an idea of like, we need to establish some capacity before we go into that max power or, or, we lack punching power. We need to dip into that max velocity rotation, but I'm a huge fan of like extensive med ball rotational throws. That's, that's almost what I lead off 
all of my strength and power days in the weight room is is some type of med ball um, circuit or relay where we're throwing rotation from the hips. I'm doing like a shot put throw into the wall and it's like, you know, I, I keep the reps a little bit lower where it's like four or five or six, but like it's repetitive. It's not necessarily one throw reset, one throw reset where, you know, a pitcher or somebody that, you know, even like if we can even think of like a UFC heavyweight or a mixed martial arts heavyweight, like they're going to throw mm-hmm. less volume so we can focus on power a little bit more. So maybe they're doing a step behind throw reset, step behind throw, right? So you can play around with a lot of those variables and like, man, med balls are some of the best tools for rotational athletes that I think we've ever had or we, we've dabbled into. So adding med balls into your training is almost inherently adding rotation in your training in a power and speed setting because it's uh it's a little more of like a athletic maneuver and like you said it just opens up the degrees of freedom well it increases your ability to brace too so why i like med balls is so we've talked about in our training trunk stability um podcast the uh contract relax contract phenomenon that uh, Stu mcgill talked about where you need to be Mm -hmm. able to brace you need to be able to relax then you need need to be able to brace again upon impact so if I'm throwing a med ball into a wall, I need to be able to brace to develop maximal or maximal strength. And then I need yeah. to be able to relax as the med ball goes towards the wall mm-hmm. and tries to develop maximal velocity. So that allows me to train that stability pattern over and over and over again. And it's just like how I talk about breathing, that the more reps you get at something, typically the more efficient you're going to be. And that's why like I'm I'm relatively picky on the bracing strategies and, and watching the low back position and watching the trunk position of my athletes doing their med ball throws, because I want to make sure that if we're doing these reps, these reps better be fucking good. And they need to have intention behind them. So that's why I try to force them to do breathing and bracing mixed with the med ball throws. No, and I, I love that point too. And the uh, one little point I highlight, like with the med balls, that's really the only implement or tool in the weight room that it's common to let go of, right? Yes. Like yeah. you actually like throw it, right? You can do it a little bit with a landmine or this or that or whatever, but it's the only commonly released implement in the weight room. So that's another reason that I love it because, you know, relatively every movement we do with a barbell or with a trap bar or with dumbbells is going to be kind of closed chain right? The med ball open chains it up, which is more realistic or more, you know, similar to our fighting style or fighting type of training. But, but let's go into the, the kind of biomechanical movement in rotation and what, what we view as correct or what we're looking for to pick, pick apart. Cause you, you did mention a little bit of like, we don't want any lumbar rotation, right? We want stability through our lumbar spine. So our T spine can rotate, but the common thing I see with fighters, and this probably comes from grappling the most, yeah. T-spines are super rigid and locked up. Yeah. Well, you see it a lot. I've started to see a lot of my wrestling and my grappling backgrounds having more of like a hyperkyphosis because you're in that position for prolonged right. periods of time. So yeah. hyperkyphosis is just they're rounding their mid-back more than normal and it actually creates a structural change because of the, I guess, uh, the demands that you're imposing your body upon. Yeah, the um, frequency too. Yeah, due to the sport. So they have that almost like that humpback, which is extremely common with the wrestling athlete. But with that humpback, it actually decreases their ability to rotate, unfortunately. So they have to get it from somewhere else. Typically, it's going to be that TL junction or that low back, even though the spine isn't set up to rotate too much there. Um, and and that sheer force of the low back or ex- ex- expecting it to rotate too much or or more than it should 
is what leads to our shear force injuries, like our uh, one-sided disc herniations, um, and, and so so on and so forth. Along with it, could just be just back tightness and back spasms. Yeah, and that that's very identifiable through our assessment, which is that sideline shoulder sweep, right? That's mm-hmm. what essentially as one of the pieces that's what that I we're, use. Yeah, yeah that's what for. I use to check it, right? Is if you can, I do a sideline shoulder sweep, which is our building a fighter assessment. And then in clinic, I'll actually pair that up with uh, an archer to see if it's the shoulder mobility that's leading them. Right. Like the overhead, is it the overhead stability issue or is it the rotation issue? If the rotation is the problem where they just, if they bring it across their chest, they're not even overhead and they arch their back. Then I'm like, oh, motherfucker, I need to teach this guy how to stabilize. And I try to, I got to mobilize that mid back as much as possible if I want them to actually rotate. Um, the other thing that we can look at too with the, with that hyperextension or that arching of the low back is going to be watch them hit the bag. That's one of my favorite, honestly, that's one of my favorite assessments is just watching the athlete hit the bag because how they do that in their sport is probably going to dictate how they do that. If I try to load them into a different movement in the weight room. So if I could watch them hit the bag and they're throwing, and then after like the first minute, if they're doing five minute rounds, they just start to just throw their arm and they arch their back to get there. I know they're not actually rotating. They're not using their hips. They're not pushing off the, they're not using ground reactive force. They're not doing anything along the lines of proper stability once they reach a fatigue point. So that is something that I can emphasize in my training. Those are the athletes that I'm going to increase the rotational capacity work on. That's what, those are the people I'm going to throw on the fucking wall and say, Hey, you're doing scoop tosses for two fucking minutes. We're going to keep a stable pace. Let's go. (laughs) Because like I see that, I see that in a similar lens to aerobic capacity. If I can increase your capacity through a given movement pattern or through a given lens that I need you to increase, then I can make you recover faster. I can make you be more efficient. I can focus on the things you do well and things that I want to emphasize that are going to carry into your sport. So it's all just a capacity game and capacity increases recovery. Well, a hundred percent. I love that as like a capacity emphasized, like GPP type of movement, right? Like, mm-hmm. like we talk about just doing work for GPP or we can impl- uh, uh, mix in a bunch of different modalities, but like that med ball scoop toss or something, we can just hit that, hit that, hit that, hit that. And it's like, and it's how well can you do this over a prolonged period of time, right? Like that's, again, that's the intent and the focus that has to go behind it. Right. So I think that's super valuable in a training environment that we can implement the rotational training, not only when we get to specific camp, right, or specific fight prep, but we can implement it in general training too. Because again, a lot of times this just isn't touched, right? And that's not touched, it's not touched, not touched. Oh, now we're late in camp. We better do some specific work here, some rotation, right? But like if our athlete hasn't layered in the foundations of good biomechanical rotation, then that power that we're doing, they're just going to end up feeding into maybe a dysfunction in their. If you know me, you know, I'm always on the run up early and home late. So having a three hour morning routine isn't really in the cards for me. What is in the cards is AG1. It's a fast way to get vitamins and minerals I need to perform. I first gave AG1 a try because I wanted a single solution that helps support my entire body by filling in nutrient gaps and simplifying my morning routine. Since drinking AG1 daily, I've always felt strong and energized and ready to attack the day. Not only does AG1 deliver my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre- and probiotics, and more, it's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. 
It's one scoop mixed in water once a day and every day. I know that AG1 is giving my body high-quality nutrition. Every batch of AG1 goes through a rigorous testing process so you know that it's safe. And AG1 ingredients are sourced for absorption, potency, and nutrition density. AG1 is a supplement that I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and that's why I'm excited to welcome them as a new partner. Here is your chance to start every day this season with a gift to yourself. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash provengrit. That's drinkag1.com slash provengrit. Check it out. If you know me, you know I'm always on the run up early and home late, so having a three-hour morning routine isn't really in the cards for me. What is in the cards is AG1. It's a fast way to get vitamins and minerals I need to perform. I first gave AG1 a try because I wanted a single solution that helps support my entire body by filling in nutrient gaps and simplifying my morning routine. Since drinking AG1 daily, I've always felt strong and energized and ready to attack the day. Not only does AG1 deliver my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre- and probiotics, and more, it's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. It's one scoop, mixed in water, once a day, and every day. I know that AG1 is giving my body high-quality nutrition. Every batch of AG1 goes through a rigorous testing process, so you know that it's safe. And AG1 ingredients are sourced for absorption, potency, and nutrition density. AG1 is a supplement that I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and that's why I'm excited to welcome them as a new partner. Here is your chance to start every day this season with a gift to yourself. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash provengrit. That's drinkag1.com slash proven grit. Check it out. Sports specific movement. So we can correct a lot of those problems by screening it originally and then throwing it into their off camp or GPP type of work. So I think that's super valuable and a good point that you hit on. And I'm curious, Austin, too, have you ever ran into, I mean, I'm sure I see it in female populations a lot more, but have you ran into any like hypermobile thoracic spines? hypermobile thoracic spines, not a whole bunch. Um, well, I take that back. Uh, the system is hypermobile. The thoracic spine is not, is typically what I see. Okay. Um, it's a different joints are able to get increased mobility. So there's a lot of laxity. So like, say like a lot of quote unquote, hypermobile thoracic spines are actually just fucking crazy, excessive hypermobility in the shoulder joint. Yeah. That makes it look like a thoracic spine is, is hypermobile, but it's really hard for the, the T spine to become extremely hypermobile just based upon the demands of everyday life of being an American, um, because of our normal static posture. But what I do see a lot that almost every athlete can work on is sling, um, lack of sling pliability, like not being able to actually rotate and like pull your like anterior oblique sling back, which is just essentially for the people at home that don't know what our sling system is. We have our fascia that connects our muscles all the way through our body. Um, there's different slings all the way across your body, whether it's straight up and down, like your longitudinal line, whether it's down the back, whatever it may be. But the big ones for rotation are going to be 
the muscles that connect from the front of your hip all the way up to the front of your shoulder in a diagonal. So if it's your left hip, it'll be your right shoulder and vice versa, as well as like your lat and the back of your shoulder to your opposite glute. That's going to be your posterior oblique sling. One thing that our sideline shoulder sweep assessment does really well is that's going to assess anterior oblique sling pliability based off basically what I want to say, or the easy way to talk, think about this is like a rubber band. If you can only pull back a rubber band halfway, it's not going to travel as far as if you pull it back the full way when you try to snap it and let it go, right? When you're trying to shoot mm-hmm. that rubber band. If my athlete can only get their sideline shoulder sweep above their head before they start lifting up their hips or lifting up or arching their back or whatever it may be, I know that there is a lack of pliability or lack of pullback of their anterior oblique sling. If they cannot get that pullback or cannot get that stretch, then they're not able to generate maximal velocity in that punch going forward in that throw going towards the plate, any sort of rotational movement. If they can't get the full sling pullback, they're not going to be able to generate as much power forward. Exactly. And that, that happens to pair perfectly with this hyperkyphosis and this like more Bingo. forward posture that we see specifically within wrestlers or grapplers, right? That's why not only is transitioning to being a striker, transitioning to MMA difficult on a technical side of things is difficult on a uh, morphological or a physical side of things too, because that's not what you trained your body to do. That's not how you spent your 10,000 hours in the gym. That's not the, the ranges of motion. That's not the, the utilizable aspect. That's not the energy system. That's not the, the, the power demand or the, um, biomechanical lens that you've trained your body to do. So we have to put in a, a lot of hours and a lot of physical work and more, like I said, like morphological type of adaptations to the system to open yourself up, right? Those shoulders that are always constantly rounded forward or like, or maybe you're a guy that's like bench pressed a ton, or, or maybe we've done a million and a half pushups because for whatever reason, people think pushups are a great exercise, right? We've, we need to open up the chest. We need to be able, like you said, from the anterior oblique sling, we need to be able to expand into that range of motion and truly use it as our rubber band. Not only do we need to open it because there's a ton of people that are super mobile and open there, but we need to make it elastic. We need to be able to bounce back and create some power from it, which is punching, you know? Yeah. It's, it's the biggest thing is trying to think about uh, taking it a step further in your programming is what a lot of rotation. That's what I see is there's some, there's some athletes that do just need, they just need to burn it out in pushups, right? They just don't have the upper body fatigue, uh, resistance to where they just need to fucking burn out pushups. But a lot of athletes, they actually have the muscular endurance. They just don't know how to coordinate that into their system as efficiently as possible. So it's not that the pushing movement is the fatigue portion. It's that integrating the pushing movement into the total system is when things get fatigued. They don't know how to integrate that. So their chest and their arms start getting heavy. Or like I see that a lot with honestly with biceps with boxers throwing hooks over and over again is it's not that their biceps don't have the muscular endurance to go through the fucking fight. It's that 
them trying to integrate it into their system is the issue. It takes a lot of energy because they don't know how to coordinate that bicep contraction into the sling system. So their arms get fatigued and they just get fucking heavy and they just feel like they can't throw it. And that's actually the fatigue or that fatigue issue. So we need to train those biceps in a rotatory fashion or integrate them into the system, not just train them separately, which is what a lot of people do. Well, and that's, I think that's a a more sophisticated take on movement or movement causality and, um, relationships among the body, you know, like, like Mm -hmm. the the quote in my head that popped up was Israel Adesanya talking about MMA, like casual fans, right? Like when you're watching and you're casual, you don't know that one jab is different from the next jab is different from this jab, right? Like there's multiple jabs and you got to pick and play when to, to implement them where the casual fan is just like, man, he's just he just needs to throw his jab more. It's like, well, maybe fucking not like in, uh, in the other place that I see this in my own life is I've started to implement a little bit more yoga or like just movement flows and patterns into my life. And I spent a lot of time in a down dog and my triceps burn out so Mm -hmm. fast. Right. And that's not necessarily because my triceps are weak. Like I've done a lot of work to make sure my triceps are strong, but that's because I'm not stabilizing in the holistic system of my body and truly using like my serratus and my, my upper back to hold myself in that position. I'm relying pretty exclusively on my triceps. So that's something that I, I actively think about or, or, uh, something you can identify like if one muscle is getting super fatigued chronically in whatever movement that you're doing or like you said you're throwing hooks repetitively and your biceps just burning out burning out burning out it's like maybe it's not that your biceps are weak but maybe you're suboptimally utilizing them in a holistic movement pattern Right. Well, it's, it's how I talk, honestly, from the clinical side, it's how I talk about like disc herniations and people trying to stretch their hamstrings for that. It's if you're only going after the muscular endurance portion of the hook, you're probably treating the symptom, not the cause, right? Just like in disc herniations. Like if you're going after the hamstring tightness and you're trying to stretch your hamstrings when you have a disc herniation, you're just treating a symptom and actually making the problem worse. Right. So if you're, if you're just going after like the muscular endurance portion of, we'll say like bicep tricep for a boxing athlete, and you're not looking to integrate that movement into the entire system with bracing with higher intensity threshold or threshold work, then you're, you're really probably doing a disservice. You're actually making the problem worse because you're just wasting time on the wrong portion of what that athlete needs. Well, and then the double fault that you're making is these mechanical muscular changes that we're going after, right? Stretching your hamstrings, stretching your hamstrings. That takes a long time to see an adaptation. So like, Mm -hmm. even if you're really consistent and you stretch your hamstrings in a correct fashion, or you're doing it like, um, intelligently. And then you get down the road, you know, three, six, nine months. And you're like, Hey man, now my hamstrings are super flexible, but the problem's still there. Right. You right. just, well, the problem's you, actually worse. Cause you just keep doing rounded lumbar flexion over and over again and fucking sure. So, off the disc. so you've, you've <laughs> not only inaccurately tried to solve the problem, but you've taken a long time to do it. So now you're, you're doubled down cause you lost your time and you're being ineffective. Right. So that's, uh, that's where it becomes really important to identify causes, not just symptoms. And a lot of times you see this in, in rotation because rotation is one of those, you know, under the current type of movement patterns or, or topics that we see in a strength and conditioning sense. 
Well, mo- rotation's a complex pattern at the end of the day. Like it, at point blank, it is. There's a lot of moving parts that go into rotation, right? You need to be able to sink into the hips. You need to be able to create ground reactive, for- ground reactive force through the foot. You need to be able to maintain trunk stability. You need to be able to move your upper body and make that as relaxed as possible as it moves towards your target, whether you're punching, whether you're throwing, whether you're doing anything with rotation. And because of all of these different parts, the train, the strength and conditioning coach, the therapist, whoever's working with the athlete really needs to have a handle on what is breaking down in the system that you're trying to become, make better. And that's where the whole assess, don't guess thing comes in that we talk about yeah. all the time is you need to know what the weak link is to try to sure up that link and try to make that chain as strong as possible. And if all you do is go after the symptoms as they pop up, I promise you, you, there's probably a deeper problem at fault if two or three things just keep popping up along the way is that you're probably going after the wrong thing. So that's, that's one of those things that even as a therapist, like thinking about the difference between treating an MMA athlete versus a baseball pitcher versus a quarterback versus a tennis player, um, a golfer, a lot of the therapy I actually do for the different athletes is relatively similar. As far as if it's just performance care, if I'm trying to increase performance with the therapy with which I'm doing, yeah. it's going after slings. I'm trying, I'm trying to let's, that's where my DNS uh, stuff comes in where it's really good to train the ipsilateral patterning of increasing that sling pull while under proper trunk stabilization. That's where I'm going to needle all the way through the anterior oblique sling. I'll hit the pec. I'll hit the hip flexor. I'll hit all the way through that to increase pliability and decrease the fascial tension. Right. Um, that's where I'll increase their mobility demands and I'll try to focus on increasing them by doing manual therapy with movement, opening up that anterior oblique sling or posterior oblique sling, depending on the athlete. But a lot of the therapy demands, if I have a performance lens on it and there's not an active issue, that's going to be extremely similar, whether it's golf, whether it's tennis, whether it's fighting, whether it's baseball, it doesn't really matter. It's all the same movement and the same things that those athletes can get better as long as I'm focused on the right shit. Right. And we have these common threads as far as like the, the movement limitations and the common movement and rotational pattern um, per se with you. So, so if we see these common threads happening across multiple sports with multiple athletes and then we – we start with an assessment. Then we start to open up the the individual triggers that we see on the assessment. What, where is your your base level foundation and start for, um, I guess training rotation and a strength. And we talked a little bit about capacity, but like, what's your your generalized progression of rotational movement with a lot of these athletes? Like, say we're starting everybody in a GPP lens. Right. And, and we've identified rotation as a, an important pattern in their specific sport. Where is your generalized like starting point or jumping off point? I'm thinking for the, the athlete or the practitioner that's trying to implement this on Monday. Um, I start with the only way that you can stabilize in rotation is to understanding stabilization in sagittal plane. So I'm going to start with breathing. Um, I'll have them focus on breathing first and then have them run through different rotational assessments. So we're going to do, if it's a therapist, I want them doing passive range of motion in the hips, passive range of motion in the shoulders, passive range of motion through the entire sling. So I'll have them do almost like, like you're wringing out a towel, try to bring the knee towards you and open up the chest away from you. Um, similar to a a sideline shoulder sweep. Um, and then I'm going to also on the performance lens side of things, I'll have them do their max med ball 
uh, punches in our building a fighter assessment. Um, and then I'll have them also do a, I have a different assessment where you're in a dead bug and you're trying to lift up with your hand. So they're in like a end dead bug position, but legs are up and you're trying yeah. to in- activate the anterior oblique sling as hard as you can. And I want to see, are you going to arch your back to get there? Yes or no. So that tells yeah. me how that athlete can use the sling system. Do they immediately dip forward so they don't have the trunk stability necessary or are they efficient in their movement? They brace correctly and they try to pull and typically they can lift that kettlebell. Yeah. Interesting. I like that. That's a definitely a good loaded assessment. One of the more loaded assessments I like, especially for the anterior big sling is like a, a half kneeling. And I don't want to call it a payoff press because there's active rotation going on, but it's like a payoff press with a rotation away from your, your anchor point. Right? So if we set up in a half kneeling payoff press, we have the near knee down and then I have my arms extended and let's say it's a cable machine. Can I rotate and actively and, with stability, rotate that cable away from the machine. And am I doing that in a correct type of fashion? I like adding that in on a base level of stability and strength in our movement capacity. Can we rotate away from the cable machine effectively and maybe do that for like three sets of eight each side, right? So yeah, I think that's a loaded assessment as well. Yeah. And then once we figure out the assessments, then we want to start from the ground up, right? We don't want to just, unless they're in camp, which obviously changes everything. If they're in camp, then I'm I'm, honestly, I'm probably not trying to increase past a lot of this stuff. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to look past a lot of this. I'm going to increase their performance metrics and their overall total system, not just focus on fine tuned details. Um, Just honestly, because I get two to three sessions with them a week and I got to pick what's most going to make the biggest impact for that athlete. For sure. Um, but if I have all the time I want and I'm going to do this the right way. And, and if you guys have the time to do it the right way where it's out of camp, then in camp, then you're going to start with the lowest level of trunk stability needed. So you're going to start on the ground positions. You could, this, this is where I really like my DNS positions where they're going to implement, um, like a sideline get up or roll from three month all the way up to a sideline get up where they have to increase that stability yeah. as you go through different trunk stability patterns. So you start with a homolog pattern where you're straight up and down, you're rolling into ipsilateral, which means that your shoulder and your hip are rotating in the same direction and you have mm-hmm. to brace and increase trunk or either hip or shoulder function while you're under a proper brace, which right. is it sounds low threshold until you do it right. And then you're like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> like yeah, it's, exactly. you start shaking and shit. That's um, my exact experience with, you know, uh, your oblique. Uh, yeah. The oblique sit or modified yeah. oblique sit. Like that's, yeah. that's actually a position that I start a lot of athletes in as long as there's no uh, like FAI or hip impingement uh, issues, yeah. then I'm going, I start them in a modified oblique sit. I have them breathing in that position yep. and being able to breathe under in, increased hip internal rotation and breathe under a rot- rotatory pattern. Then from yeah. there, they're going to rock up into it. We actually add movement, but once we get them competent with their trunk stability in the body weight movements that are more DNS based, that typically will take in my experience, some like higher level athletes that are like extremely motor competent, they'll pick it up relatively quickly, a couple weeks. Um, some other athletes, it might take a couple months, but this is all layered in with the different training that we can do. So once I know the athlete is competent, then I'll start throwing in like Kaiser push pulls, med ball work, um, yeah. 
landmine work, all these different things that are going to increase. And, but then the, the lens that with which I use isn't, oh, we're just going to throw as much fucking st- weight on the bar as possible. It's not an absolute right. capacity movement. This is where I layer my functional capacity where I don't fucking care how much weight you put on the bar. I care that we're doing it proficiently and right. effectively because that's going to increase your efficiency as you step into a fight. Right. And then that the absolute capacity has to come later, right? Essentially at some point where we can do it really well and we've baselined that competency. Now let's see if we can push it and gain strength for your, your athlete that is missing that strength and power. You can add some uh, hot sauce into it with weight or resistance. Like I think that's the the secret sauce and like what makes Turkish get up such an effective or great movement is like, mm-hmm. that's where you can load heavy. Right. It, once we've got our base level competency down, that's where we can load heavy. Yeah. Well, and this is also where I see the argument we're making rotation is rotation starts to branch off between the sports. And yeah. once you get past every, I, I feel all rotatory athletes should have a baseline competency of the DNS movement patterns and being able to roll around on the ground with proper stability under body weight. Right. Right. But this is where it starts branching off of if I have a, if I have a fighter in camp, yes, of course I want it to be good. Yes. I'm going to try to pick off form, but it's more on, I need to increase the performance metrics versus if I'm, if I'm working with like a baseball player, it is not as intense of a sport. I don't need to focus on the conditioning aspect as much. So I can focus on those movement competency skills because I have more time at my disposal. I don't need to do a fucking 15 minute density circuit, or I don't need to do a heavy EMOM set or, or bike sprints or anything like that. I need to focus on what's going to get this athlete the best possible for their sport. And if their sport is just repeat exposure, then I can focus on the fine tuned details instead of focusing on the conditioning aspect as much. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's kind of your progression from really generalized base level movements into now we can specify once, you know, and, and this whole process is like ongoing and chronic and, and, and whatever, but, um, your timelines are going to be different. And most of the time, those timelines are based upon logistical real life competition, not well, necessarily it, it's based also, on competency. Yeah. Well, it's also based on the complexity or the, the movement, the degrees of freedom of the sport. Yeah. Like MMA, there's so many different variables. You it's, you have to pick what you're working with versus like throwing a baseball. How many different variables go into throwing a baseball? Like you're doing the exact same thing over and over again. You're trying to do it as 100% as possible, right? There's yeah. not a lot of outside stimulus outside of the fans cheering or outside of the well, weather yeah. or whatever it may be. It's but It's literally a closed skill, right? You choose exactly. when to initiate. Yeah, exactly. Versus MMA is so open. There's so many different options that could be hitting yeah. you that it doesn't have to be as perfect as throwing a baseball, throwing Which, a baseball. Yeah. If you're at 92%, you're getting fucking rocked. Yeah. yeah <laughs> if right. in MMA, if you're throwing at a movement competency of 80%, you are by far the better fucking striker. You're doing pretty good. Well. Yeah. 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 So no, I, I totally agree with that too. But my point was what I was saying, like, as you're progressing through this competency of movement, like, do you have the correct biomechanical rotational ability, right? Like fight's going to come when a fight comes. It's not going to come once we've progressed your rotation enough. Right, right. Right. So, but yeah, I think that's, that's a good general outline and map to go off on your rotational athletes and your rotational progressions. Rotations, rotation, bitches. Yes, it is. All right, y'all. So if you got to get in touch with us, all of our information is in the show notes. If you want to hit up building a fighter, 
for any of your programming needs. We have mobility memberships. We have a building a fighter program. We have custom programs. We got it all at buildingafighter.com. You can go to backslash programs too if you want to just go right to the programs page. Oh, yeah. Um, but as always, this is Dr. Austin Shane. Alex Friedman. And we are out. Thank you.